Welcome to the Sustainable Nano Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Krauss, and we are very happy to be back with a whole new batch of episodes for spring 2017. I hope all of you listeners had a wonderful winter break, if you had a break. We've got a lot of great episodes in store for you this spring. Today's episode is an interview with Dr. Michael Curry, who is a professor at Tuskegee University in Alabama. Dr. Curry is one of the faculty members who is a collaborator in the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology which of course is the producer of the Sustainable Nano podcast. And I got a chance to talk with Dr. Curry about his work in nanocellulose. Cellulose is one of the most abundant polymer molecules anywhere. It's found in plants and nanocellulose is nanoparticles basically made from that substance. And it's exciting because in a lot of ways nanocellulose has the potential to be far more sustainable material than some of the currently more commonly used uh, types of nanoparticles that we have. So you'll hear lots more about that in the interview coming up. This episode is going out on Valentine's Day in the United States, and although this episode doesn't really have anything to do with that, uh, if you're looking for some Valentine's Day-themed science reading, I can recommend our Sustainable Nano blog post from last week, which is all about what nanotechnology has to do with chocolate. So if you're interested in that, go ahead and uh, visit our blog at sustainable-nano.com. I hope you enjoy it. In the meantime, here's my interview with Dr. Curry. You'll be able to hear we had our conversation in an office, so that's why you may hear a few clicks and telephone sounds as we go along. Welcome to the Sustainable Nano Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today uh, here on campus at Tuskegee University in Tuskegee, Alabama with Dr. Michael Curry. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself to get started? Yes, um, I'm an associate professor in the Department of Chemistry. I'm also an adjunct associate professor in the Department of Material Science and Engineering. I sit on the graduate student board for the Integrative Bioscience program here at Tuskegee University. And I actually mentor the student affiliates for American Chemical Society. And I also mentor the Noble Shade Group, which stands for National Advancement of Black Chemists and Chemical Engineers. You wear a lot of hats. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of hats. (laughs) So to start off with, thanks again for for taking the time to talk to us today. How did you get involved in the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology? Well, I mean, there are two parts that kind of fit into the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology. Um, As a scientist, I work on both the inorganic and the organic side of nanoparticles. What that means is that I make metallic nanoparticles and I make uh, organic nanoparticles out of say, carbon. For instance, um, nanocellulose is one of the areas where I work. So, like, we've talked uh, on the podcast occasionally about, like, gold nanoparticles is one thing that people work with a lot, or quantum dots that have selenium and uh, cadmium, those, like, Mm -hmm. metal, those would be metal uh, examples, right? Right, right. So then, uh, but carbon, so is, like, a carbon nanotube, is that an example of an organic nanoparticle? Right, right. A carbon nanotube is an organic, is an example of an organic but when I say uh, nanocellulose, mm-hmm. especially na- they call them nanoparticles, I'm more talking about um, cellulose that has been linked together into a polymer by sugar monomers. Mm. So you have these sugar monomers that has been linked together to form this long chain, and the way they pack together makes it a cellulose polymer. Hmm. So what's an example of a cellulose that's not nano? So if people might have heard of that term, what does cellulose mean just in a kind of normal scale? Right. So uh, cellulose is, of course, is a natural product that comes from biomass. 
for instance, plant biomass. Um, it's actually one of the things that helps to plant uh, leaves and mm-hmm. their stems to be so strong. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of different types of cellulose contained in that plant. So you, have, you actually have to extract out the cellulose content. So the, when you extract the cellulose out, it could be on the bulk scale, which we call microcrystalline cellulose, or it can be on the nano scale, which we call nanocrystalline cellulose. And even within those uh, confines, there are different types of cellulose, but just to know that one is on a bulk scale mm-hmm. and one is on a nano scale. So what's the difference there? The difference is in their diameters, not their length, but their width. Mm-hmm. On the microcellulose, it's on a micron scale, so it's micrometer in width. And on the nanocellulose is nanometer in width. Mm-hmm. And so are there, what's the advantage of having it on the nanoscale? So we've talked on the podcast a little bit before where, again, an example like gold, when you have it at tiny little pieces, they still act like gold. But if once you get it down to nano, they start to have different properties and different colors and different electrical conductivity or whatever. So how does that work with cellulose? Um, in a similar fashion. Going from the micro scale to the nano scale with cellulose allows us to manipulate some of its properties and then it gives us an advantage on some of the properties that it, it for its mechanical or thermal that it may exhibit that is not uh, seen on the micro scale. One of the big advantages of having nano cellulose is that it actually has increased surface area. So the, the amount of surface area that's exposed is vastly more. And so, you know, we can take that surface area and do modifications on a larger scale. So that's, therefore we can change its properties on a larger scale. Also, the mechanical properties of the nanocellulose is actually superior to the microcellulose. And so if you can imagine that if we wanted to enhance the properties of some materials, then it would probably be better to use a nanocellulose than it would be to use a microcellulose because the nanocellulose has the superior mechanical um, properties. So, in, and when you say superior mechanical properties, that means things like um, how strong it is for the size? Right. Or? So, when we, as material scientists, I'm going to put my material scientist mm-hmm. hat on mm-hmm. now. As material scientists, when we talk about superior mechanical properties, typically we're referring to its toughness, its resistance to tear or its resistance to wear or its hardness. And so generally when you have changed the dimensions of any object going from a micro to a nano scale, you're going to change those mechanical properties. Mm-hmm. And so they increase as you typically as you move down further to the nanoscale. Cool. So um, so are there advantages to, you've talked about, you know, you can get nanocellulose by working with biomass, like plant matter and stuff. So how does that work? Is that different from what, like, conventional, like, if people are manufacturing carbon nanotubes, for example, are they not using, they don't usually use, like, plants to make carbon nanotubes? What's the conventional standard nowadays in in industry? Okay, so if you're comparing the synthesis of carbon nanotubes to the extraction of cellulose, what I would say is that the extraction of cellulose is probably a lower energy process. Mm -hmm. The uh, growth of carbon nanotube is a very high energy process where they use high pressures, chemical vapor depositions. But in the extraction of um, cellulose, we're actually using acids to break down the hemicellulose, the ligand, and the cellulose that's entangled so that we can pull that cellulose out. And so those are actually low energy processes. So it's a little bit more sustainable, as you would say, in the process of making these products as opposed to more conventional processes. Right. So, I mean, the sustainability of 
extracting cellulose is um, definitely a big plus mm-hmm. because biomass is everywhere, cellulose is everywhere. Um, carbon nanotubes, we have to grow. We have to grow these things. Uh, so normal carbon nanotubes, you're actually like building from the right. It's like, like a, a bottom up carbon, or right? Right. It's like a, there's a bottom up approach and then there are top down approaches. And like I said, in the cellulose, we're actually extracting it from a medium. So mm-hmm. we're extracting it from biomass, right? That's how we got, and it's natural, yeah. right? So what are some examples that you've used in your lab as far as like sources? Oh, some great examples. Uh, we've used cotton, and I got a good story about the, about yeah. the cotton. Um, so my student who does all the extractions for our group actually was riding along one day the road and passing by um, the Auburn Center, and she saw cotton out there on the side of the road. And she decided she wanted to go and test this cotton. And so she stopped alongside the road and picked a few pieces of the cotton and brought it back to the lab. And she was extracting it. And I walked into the lab and I said, oh, you bought cotton? She said, no, I just got this. I said, oh, I don't think you can do that. Oh. <laughs> it was a Auburn. They were growing cotton. So she was just stopping oh, to mine. The right, so and she was mining cotton. <laughs> and so we called the university and we asked them, could we test their cotton and extract the cellulose to see about them? And they was, of course, you know, gracious. And they was like, oh, yeah, yeah, we want you guys to test this. Because they was excited about this new research of nanocellulose going forward and making these uh, sustainable and <laughs> biodegradable composites and so but we've used cotton uh we've used wheat straw we've used hibiscus and one thing about hibiscus is that it's actually known to lower blood pressure and it's one of my colleagues is actually working on it and he thinks that it may have some antimicrobial properties which would be really cool if we're extracting it from uh hibiscus if we cannot include some of that some of that natural hibiscus into the cellulose composite and it has these antimicrobial properties so now you have you know a natural biodegradable plastics that can fight off bacteria that's really cool which would be really uh something cool to and develop. again a really neat alternative to like we've i've heard about nano silver being used right. for antimicrobial but again right. it's this metal and you have to be really cautious about what's happening to it then if right. it like washes out of your clothes and ends up right. in the, in the waste stream or whatever. And that's a good point that you brought up because one of the things that has been happening with cellulose is that uh, people have been trying to grow antimicrobial nano, metallic nanoparticles inside of the cellulose network so that it will have these antimicrobial properties. And one of the points that you did bring up was that what happens when those metal starts to leach out? But what if you had something natural that you can put inside and when it leaches out, it, it's nothing happens. just a little ball of cellulose. Right, it's just a little here. ball of cellulose. Right. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, great. So are there any uh, like things like that you're working on kind of right now that you're really excited about? That, that... Yes. Uh, so we made a new discovery. Well, correction. My student made a new <laughs> discovery who uh, I'm paying. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I often like to I love giving students the credit because they go into the lab and they put in these hours and we want to make sure we reward them. But he made a new discovery. Uh, one of the issues with cellulose is being able to incorporate it into different composites, such as uh, different polymers where you can make these plastics that have these biodegradable and they're sustainable and don't you know, cause harm to our environment. Mm-hmm. There's a big issue with getting those put into the, those composites because of it absorbs water. Mm-hmm. We can't dissolve it in water, but it will absorb water. That's a big problem. It's not a good and, plastic. Right? And so it's, it's really kind of incompatible, you know, with the current plastics that are out there. And um, there are some natural polymers that could be used to make plastics, but because of their lack of these, you know, supreme mechanical properties or thermal properties, they're not uh, ready for market use. 
However, we've discovered a method where we can now suspend cellulose and combine those with any non-biodegradable or biodegradable plastic uh, polymer to make a plastic that is environmentally friendly. And so that has been, you know, something that has taken off and we've got a lot of notice. Uh, we recently had a contact from a, con a company in um, Wisconsin and one of the things that they wanted to know was can we uh, work on some of their projects and make some of their materials biodegradable for their customers to enhance, you know, their uh, materials as far as it being sustainable, environmentally friendly, and then, you know, of course, the mechanical and thermal properties. That's very exciting. Right. So, um, so I don't want to take too much of your time, but uh, can you tell us a little bit about how, how did you end up being a chemistry professor? How did you get into this? Uh, that's a very odd story because as a graduate student, uh, okay, so, you know, when every student goes to graduate school to get a PhD, their advisor sits them down and, you know, asks, okay, what do you want to do with your life? Do you want to go into industry or do you want to go into academia? And they try to kind of plan them for that. Well, I was going into industry. Right. So I was kind of put into a, a materials research and engineering center mm -hmm. uh, program, uh, NSF funded. So I was kind of on that track to go into industry. However, my advisor made the mistake of giving me an undergraduate student and putting me in the lab with that undergraduate student. Oh, to mentor. Right, to mentor. And as I mentored that student, I could see that, how that student progressed and I could see how my interaction with that student actually changed that student's perception on science because the student came in and that student was you know hated to go in the lab hated to make solutions but about the end of their time that with me at that for the summer program they were like uh i'm coming back next year because i want to do we did a lot of cool stuff and so being able to you know take someone and change their view on science kind of stuck with me and i was like well maybe i can do this on a on a larger scale, and so I tried to teach one of my uh, advisor cl uh, classes, and I was very successful at doing it. And I was like, okay, I think I found my passion. Right? And so, ever since then, you know, my model has been how can I change a student's view on science from hey, here's this subject that I don't like to hey, here's this whole new world that I can explore. Mm -hmm. And so, that has been my passion ever since. So, that's kind of how I ended up pursuing a professor career. Mm -hmm. And I latched on to some very great people, like uh, Dr. Joe Francisco, who was like the former ACS president. Um, Dr. Joe Thrasher, who was kind of my mentor, uh, not my advisor, but one of my mentors at, U at the University of Alabama while I was there as a graduate student. And they really gave me some sound advice, and I've been uh, enjoying it ever since. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah. And how did you get in chemistry in the first place? Well, that's not an amazing story. <laughs> I was actually on my way to med school. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so to backdate the story, I went to the Navy where I did nuclear power submarines for a great deal of my time. So I rode those. That was great. Where I got really exposed to science. I wanted to go back to school for science. I wanted to come, go back closer to home because my mom was missing me. Mm -hmm. And so I went closer to home. I uh, went to school in to the University of West Alabama, which is about 60 miles from my house. I took up mathematics and chemistry and biology, which is normally what pre-med majors take. And one of my organic professors, you know, pulled me aside and said, hey, you're really good at this chemistry. Mm. And he was like, you should try just majoring chemistry. He said, you still keep med school as an option, <laughs> but just major in chemistry and, uh, you know, minor in biology and then just keep going with your math. You know, you may get a double major, who knows. I said, okay. And so I started doing chemistry and I actually started doing research for my uh, professor. And it just kind of dawned on me that, hey, okay, 
I like this. I like being in the lab. I like making new things. I like, you know, discovering new things. I like how people respond to me when I tell them about the new things that I've discovered. And so I just kind of migrated more and more and more towards chemistry. And the next thing you know, uh, during my last year there, somebody from UA shows up at my doorstep and said, hey, we're going to pay you to go to graduate school. And so I was like, wow, you, you mean you'll pay me to do something that I like? And I was like, yeah. I was like, okay, sure. That's great. <laughs> and so I kind of ended up uh, going to the University of Alabama to mm -hmm. their graduate program. And uh, it was a, a wonderful ride. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's a great story. And I think it's, uh, yeah, I just think it's really cool to hear people end up on so such a variety of different paths to come right. to come to chemistry and be part of our center. So Yeah, I always tell my students that uh, you start out on one road, but don't be afraid to make a turn here and there mm -hmm. for, to explore your options mm -hmm. because you never know, you know, success is not uh, predained, I guess, in a manner. Success is, you know, what you make of it and what you're passionate about, right? Because if you're passionate about, you know, your job, uh, your career, that's what I call it, then you're going to be successful in it no matter what. And my passion lies with interacting with students and getting students to see you know, what I see in science mm -hmm. and the possibilities that how you can impact not only, you know, students here, but your communities. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about what my student, Donald White, has discovered with this patent. We're going to change how plastics are made. He's going to, we're going to impact a global community, right? So that's unique. That's huge, yeah. Right? No, not many people get a chance to impact on that level at a graduate level. And so that's, that's a very unique Fine. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. really exciting stuff. Right. Awesome. Um, any last things that I forgot to ask about you think we should mention? Uh, no, except for, uh, um, you know, I love science. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm glad to be, you know, that I was able to contribute to CSN. And I hope that, you know, as we move forward, we're able to change the community and educate them on nanomaterials because this is now becoming a big part Mm -hmm. of our lives and we don't even know it. Yeah, and you know, your work obviously that we've just been talking about is some of the most clearly like it's nanotechnology and it's sustainability all right. together. Right. So that obviously is really fits well with our center. So and it fits great with the sustainable nano podcast. So I'm really yes. glad we were able to chat. So uh wonderful. Well thank you again so much for taking the time to talk. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of the Sustainable Nano Podcast. As I said in the interview, I think that Dr. Curry's research is such a really great tangible example of what uh, the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology is really trying to do, using fundamental chemistry research to help improve the sustainability of the nanotechnology that is already all around us. So thanks again to Dr. Curry very much for taking the time to do the interview. And thank you for listening. As always, we are very, very grateful to the National Science Foundation for providing funding to the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, which produces this podcast. Our standard disclaimer, of course, is that the opinions expressed here are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the National Science Foundation. If you are eager for more sustainable nano content, I hope you will check out our blog, which I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, at sustainable-nano.com. We've got a couple hundred different posts all about various aspects of nanotechnology, sustainability, and life in science. And of course, we've got our earlier podcast episodes, which if you haven't listened to them already, I hope you'll check them out. We've got a brand new podcast page that you can find at podcast.sustainable-nano.com. 
Our next episode is going to be an interview with author and scientist Hope Jaron. If you have heard of or read the book Lab Girl, it was a New York Times bestseller last year. Dr. Jaron is a great science communicator, and we had a chance to sit down and have a really nice conversation with her. So can't wait to bring that episode to you in just a couple of weeks. Until then, get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, blog comments, any way you like. Uh, we are at Sustainable Nano. We love to hear from listeners. What do you like about the podcast? What do you want to be different? What topics do you want us to talk about? Who do you want us to interview? Let us know. All right. See you next time. Thank you.